Amen. Amen. He will win. Come on, say that with me. He will win. He will win. He will win. So good. So good. All right, look, last week, my, my promise is to get you out of here by 6.15. We keep telling everybody, how, how long's your, 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 your pandemic service? Because, you know, we used to be 90 minutes-ish. Now we're 60 minutes-ish. 60 minutes-ish. Again, I want to give a shout-out to Amy Kimball, if you weren't here last week, who did some incredible research to help bring this little two, two-part mini-series together. So I think Amy's here somewhere. Where's Amy? Amy's in? Oh, she's with kiddos. She's with kiddos. So thank you, Amy, again. Isaiah 52, let's jump in. Isaiah 52 reads this way. Why was there no man when I came? This is Isaiah prophesying on behalf of God. Why, why was there no man when I came, when I called? Why was there no one to answer? Is my hand too short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. We're going to focus on that word in just a minute. My rebuke. I will make the rivers a wilderness Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. This word rebuke, when they were translating the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, what's called the Septuagint, they reached for the Greek word, the the root of this word that was up on the screen just a minute ago, apolitikos, which means menacing. Now, you're not going to find the word menacing in the Bible, but that's what it means in the Greek. And then they've used this word so oftentimes to articulate and describe the violent side of who God is, both Old and New Testament, apolitikos. This two-week series has been inspired by questions that I've been wrestling with myself that I shared with you last week. Has Jesus been misrepresented to us as a king who is only ever meek and gentle? We're going to talk about that tonight. Are there times when people are demonstrating a side of the character of Christ that is biblical, yet the Jesus in them is unrecognizable to us? We're going to talk about that tonight. Last week we did, has the Bible been misused to condition us to be afraid of fear? And last week we also talked about, have we failed the world by telling them God always loves everyone, always? So just a little bit of a recap to lay the foundation for us for where we're headed tonight. I gave you this definition for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God, but rather the fear of my well-being put at risk because I've chosen a path, an attitude, a lifestyle, a response, etc. that is contrary to what God demands. God has a plan for all of our lives. It is a perfect plan because he is a perfect God. And we, we call that the well-being line. There's going to be a graph that's going to come up in a little while in these slides. It's very busy. And it, if you weren't here last week, it's got a lot of parts to it. You need to go back and watch the message from last week. You can get it on the YouTube channel and we break it down piece by piece. It's the foundation of what we're teaching. Here it is now. That well-being line that's in the middle is God's plans and purposes for your life. And the do's and the don'ts on the other side of it. The do's are the things that we're supposed to do that we don't do, which is sin. And the don'ts that we shouldn't do, which is sin. And God understands that in this life, because of human frailty, we're not going to walk that line perfectly. We, we called it last week the teen driver model. We're gonna, as long as we're in the lane, God's okay. The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes and tries to get us on back on track. It's what the Bible talks about as sheep. We're prone to wander. 
But there is a place that we can cross that becomes dangerous to us spiritually. It's called the line of enmity that you see on red in top and bottom. See, once I cross the line of enmity, I begin to write a story for my life that competes with the story that God has written for me. And I begin to work against the story that God has written for the world because my story is part of the story. And we broke that down last week. Again, you need to listen to the message from last week. And it sets up everything that we're going to be talking about tonight. Tonight I want to focus in first on this idea of the enmity line. I introduced it to you last week, but I want to introduce you to a series of verses that we find in the New Testament that talk about this, this danger You see, when you and I are born, we're born on the other side of the enmity line. We're born in that zone of the wrath of God. We're we're born into this world as sinners. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 reads this way, For he, speaking of Jesus, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. That's what's on the other side of the enmity line. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, listen to what it says, has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not eliminate the wrath of God from this universe. What he did is he made a way for us to escape it. He made a way for us to be born into his family. He made a way for us to become a part of his kingdom and begin our journey following the well-being line. Romans 5.10 reads this way, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son, while we were still his enemies, the line of enmity, we will certainly be saved through the life of his Son. All these notes are online every week. If you're visiting with us, there's a PDF that you can download that gives all the verses. As we're teaching it, you can find these notes for you. We're going to get in some verses in just a minute that talk to us about the danger that we enter into when we go back to the place that we've been rescued from. See, when we think about the price that Jesus paid for us so that we could be transferred from the wrath of God to go from being the enemy of God and come down in here to within what's in between the mercy lines, the conviction zone, right, where the Holy Spirit is prompting us to get back on track when we're not doing the things that we should and we're doing the things that we shouldn't. If you and I make a willful decision to race back and begin to live on the other side of the line of enmity, you understand the affront that that is to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That He paid such a great price For us to be rescued from that place, it would be as if you were in a crisis in your home and it was burning down and the firemen came in and got all of you out and for no other reason except that it was what was familiar to you, you raced back into the burning building. That's how Jesus sees it with us. How many times do we Ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we're weaving back and forth across that well-being line and find ourselves racing towards the enmity line. And then eventually we grow numb from the fear that we should have for the wrath that's waiting for us there. 
It is a dangerous place, and it is a problem that we see in the church today, and it is not new, which is why these verses are in Scripture, because it was a problem in the first century too. That people would make a vow of devotion to Christ, be rescued from their life of sin, and, and then turn around and go right back to it. James 4.4 4 says this way, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? That's why we're calling it the enmity line. I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Let's keep going. 2 Peter 2, 20-22. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that's what we just talked about, right? We're born into that realm of the wrath of God. Jesus makes it possible when we make a vow of devotion to him for us to be transferred in the kingdom of our Lord. It says we're escape the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again. Listen to what he said. They are worse than before. They are worse than before. It would be better if, listen to what, the, this is in the Bible. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. Wow. They prove the truth of this proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and another says a wash pig returns to the mud. Now why, why are they worse off? They're worse off because the more we go back there and the longer we stay there, the less likely we will come back again because our hearts grow hard. Yep. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and share in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. Now I'm going to pause here because the writer of Hebrews is being specific here and the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writer of Hebrews right, to give us the scripture and they're giving us this kind of detail so no one is able to say, well, maybe they really weren't a Christian in the first place. But we're given this detail. They shared in the Holy Spirit. See, the only reason the Holy Spirit can come and live inside of us, the only way is through a vow of devotion to Christ, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. Verse 6, And who then turn away from God... It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Now you might be asking me the question, Fred, does that mean that you can lose your salvation? I'm going to give you the answer I've been given to this church for over 10 years. I do not believe that you can sin your way out of heaven. But I do believe that you can renounce your faith. I do believe that you can come to a place where you reject the salvation that was given to you. Not everybody's going to agree with that conclusion. We're okay with that. We, that's an open-handed issue. But regardless of whether or not you believe that you can lose your salvation, you cannot read texts like this and not come to the conclusion that there is something dangerous waiting for us spiritually if we choose to go back to the place and live there for the rest of our lives from the place from whence Christ had rescued us. 
there is a seriousness to this journey, and too many people preach a doctrine of grace that ignores these texts in the Bible. I posted this on social media this week. The grace that saves me is the grace that keeps me until the wrath that once held me becomes the lie that deceives me. The grace that saves me is the grace that keeps me. And so the wrath that once held me becomes the lie that deceives me. I have people that come and will say, well, Fred, they find these verses. Often I've had this conversation with various people, the 20-some years that I've been doing pastoral ministry, and, and it gives them pause because their story, like my story, is that they were once a follower of Christ, and then an abandon it for a, an extended period of time before coming back to Christ, which is my story. And they always ask me the same thing. What if this is referring to me? And my answer to them is always the same. If there is desire in your heart for God, then this text does not refer to you. Because if this text was speaking to you, there would be no desire in your heart for God so that you were never too far gone. But it's possible if we had stayed, right? it's sobering, isn't it? I think about this for myself. If I had not yielded my heart to Christ in December of 1990, how close was I to the point of no return? How close? For some of you, for your story. For people that you know that are on the run and heading towards the enmity line, one of the reasons why we're preaching this message, and we're going to get to it in just a minute, we have to be careful that we do not present Jesus as the lamb when really what they need is the roar of the lion to turn them around. Because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.15. Listen to these verses. But if the work is burned up, this is Paul talking about the, the labor we do for Jesus, the life's work of our ministry. If it's burned up, meaning that we did it for all the wrong reasons, the builder will suffer great loss, the builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the wall of flames. What's Paul talking about here? He said, you might, you might, you might get into heaven, but just barely. Barely escaping. I don't know about you. I don't want to enter into heaven singed because I just barely made it. At some point, we have to graduate from vacation Bible school theology. At, sometimes we at some point, we have to move past VeggieTale doctrines. At some point, we've got to move past the kids' stories that your grandmother or your grandparents read to you when you were a child about the stories of the Bible and the cartoons that you saw, I'm all for that. We started all of our kids the same way, but we, but we can't live there theologically as an adult because those stories are intended, those cartoons are intended to introduce us to basic narratives, but at some point as we grow up, our theology has to grow up with us. And there are people in this world that are running around thinking they can do whatever they want because they made a vow of devotion to Christ when they were a child and that there's no consequence to them. And I would say to them, be careful. Be careful. Because there's a lot in this book that those cartoons did not cover. And if I were you, I would read the owner's manual to the life that you have been given. 
Jesus, help us to be in step with you. I never want my ministry to others to cause people to not recognize you. Help me to know when to echo the roar of the lion and when to emulate the gentleness of the lamb. It's important that we discern who Jesus is trying to be in the life of the person and not compete with him in the moment. We need to know when to echo the roar of the lion and when to emulate the gentleness of the lamb no matter what my shape may be. We refer to this book all the time. It's by Eric Reese. It's an acronym for spiritual gifts, heart's desire, natural abilities, personality, and life experience. The book walks you through what those mean. There's tests that you can take that are available to you. The, the idea of the book is that function follows form. When you begin to understand how God made you, you can begin to understand what he's called you to do. And, de and depending on your shape, you might be more inclined to the gentleness of the lamb, or you might be more inclined to the roar of the lion. How many people in here would say you're more inclined to the roar of the lion? Raise your hand. Don't make me point at you because there's more hands that should be up than are up right now. Because I know who you are. How about the, the gentleness of the lamb? You're more inclined to the gentleness of the lamb. Yeah. That's just a great example of the body of Christ working together. The people who are inclined to gentleness and compassion need to know when to defer to the people that God has put into this world to echo the lion. And the people that God has put into this world to echo the lion need to know when to defer for when it's time for the gentleness of the lamb to be emulated. And I will also say this to you. There will be times, there will be times when God asks you to operate and to be in step with Christ in a way that feels contrary to how he made you. There are some of you, you've only ever brought gentleness to moments. There will be times in your life where God says, no, I want you to echo the roar because when it comes from you, they're really going to see it. And the person who is always willingly jumps forward and maybe more than they should to echo the roar of the lion what happens when that person emulates the gentleness of the lamb people go wow no matter who we are no matter what our shape we have to learn to defer to one another and we have to learn to submit to who Jesus is in the moment to the person that's on the run to the line of enmity Jesus was often a lion Jesus was often a lion. Now, I'm only going to read one of these for the sake of time, but there are two texts. If you download the notes, there's John 2, 13 to 16. This is at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. I'm going to jump to Matthew 21, 12 to 13. This is at the end of his earthly ministry. Three years. Most theologians and, and, and scholars believe that Jesus was crucified somewhere around the age of 33. He began his earthly ministry at 30. So for that three-year time period is the part that, that we're, we're familiar with in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He began his ministry through this act that we're going to talk about, and he ended it. God is intentional. He's not accidental. He, he bookended his entire earthly ministry with violence and aggression. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He's turning over tables. Now, this is not 
a sideways political statement. I'm just telling you what he was doing. He was vandalizing, he was protesting, and he was destroying property. Now, I don't think you and I are ever free to do that. You tracking with me? But Jesus, we talked about that last week. God hates, if that surprises you, listen to last week's message. We are never allowed to do that. But Jesus, being perfect, and Jesus, being divine, stepped in to doing something that was outrageous and illegal, and he did it twice to bookend his ministry because he knew that we're always going to be drawn to the lamb of who he is, and we don't like this idea of him being a lion and having a menacing roar and a ferocious bite, because when we see that part of Jesus, it's requiring us to make change that we don't want to make change. So we ignore that part of who he is, and we only see him as a lamb, and then we justify our, our actions and say his grace makes room for my sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was often a lion. Listen to Mark 3, 1 through 6. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, "'Come and stand in front of everyone.'" Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they would not answer him. Listen to what it says. We got to be careful that we don't read the Bible too fast. He looked around at them compassionately. No, that's not what it says. He looked around at them lovingly. No, no, that's not what it says. If your Bible says that, you need to throw it away and get a, a real one. He looked around at them angrily. He was angry at them. And deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Because these people, they lived on the other side of the enmity line. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. And at once, right, instead of celebrating and praising the miracle of this man, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot to kill Jesus. And we're not going to read through all of the verses, but I took the time this week on your behalf to make a list of all the names that Jesus called religious leaders of his day. Now, I want to read this list to you. Fools, whitewashed graves, unclean, Brood of vipers, sons of the devil, hypocrites, full of dead people's bones, and serpents. Now, you got kids in here, and you're, you're perfectly comfortable with me putting that list on that screen. Now, what I should have done is I should have translated all those words into modern-day vernacular. And then not only would you have held the ears of your children, you would have covered your eyes, and you would have rushed out the back door of the church. And some of you would have never come back. Posting Facebook, you would have not believed the words that our pastor used when he was preaching tonight. We, see, we forget. We forget that we read the Bible as a different culture, in a different language, and in a different time. And oftentimes, there's things that just go over our head. But I am telling you right now that if you 
were a God-fearing Jewish home 2,000 years ago, and you heard one of your children say any one of these to somebody else, you would have washed their mouth out with so much soap, they would have been bubbles coming out of their nose for weeks. This is, this is what we call Jewish profanity right here. Words of insult, of a religious significance that's beyond what we can even imagine in our modern-day society. When you tell a Jewish person that they are unclean, I'm telling you, you better duck because there's a right cross coming at you. These were fighting words for Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he never held back because he is a lion with a menacing roar and a ferocious bite. Not because he's mean-spirited, not because he's vengeful, not because he's reactionary, but because he understands that people's eternities are at risk, and as they are racing across the line of enmity, or maybe they've gone there years before and are parked there, they don't need the lamb to draw them out, they need a lion to chase them back to the will of God for their life. Jesus, the lion. We shun the non-Christian because of their lifestyle. I shared this thought with you recently. We shun the non-Christian. Wait, we have gotten so backwards in the church today. We shun the non-Christian because of their lifestyle. We accommodate the immorality of others because they are Christians. At what point did this get reversed? We shun the non-Christian because of their lifestyle and accommodate the immoralities of others because they are Christians. The way that Christians treat unbelievers today is completely opposite. Jesus was almost exclusively always the lamb to the sinner. And to the people that referred to themselves as the people of God, they found that lion more often than not. Again, I'm going to go here for the sake of time, and I'll also preach this message over the summer called The Corinthian Man. I'd give a little snapshot in the notes, but the reason why church discipline is such an important part of church culture today, and one of the reasons why it's so controversial, is that people feel that it is unkind. Now, has it been misused? Sure it has. Has it been poorly timed? Sometimes it is. But we cannot get away from the fact that there are times not just where we as individuals have a responsibility to echo the roar of the lion. There are sometimes collectively as a congregation we have to be willing to echo the roar of the lion. Not because we're angry. Not because we're reactionary. Not because we're punitive. But because we see the risk involved in the people. We understand that graph that we're teaching you and we see people racing across this line and we discern that Jesus is roaring, then we're going to roar with him. I shared in that message over the summer called the Corinthian man that the two most important clues, I didn't use the language of the line of enmity because that servant hadn't been preached yet. Now we're bringing them together. The clues that the enmity line is being approached is that someone is both, bo- both boastful and blatant in their sin. Boastful means that you are proud of your sinfulness and that you now identify with this new lifestyle that you are choosing beyond the life of a devoted follower of Christ. Boastful. 
Blatant means that you are ignoring and abandoning understanding that you once had. Does that make sense? That's why Jesus is so gracious to the sinner, to so many of the people that he finds doing things that they're not supposed to do because they don't know any better. That's why he tells the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more, because now she knows. Now she knows. Blatant and boastful. If you could check those two boxes, then a person is rushing headlong to the line of enmity. With, with the time that I have left, I want to talk to you about the prophetic voice that God raises up in the church. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Not everyone believes that. We do as a church. If you have questions about that, let us know. We can put you in touch with some resources. Did you know that 17 of the 39 Old Testament books are all by prophets? 17 of 39. If you're not a numbers person, that means a lot. 17 of 39. When you read in the prophets, especially the minor prophets, they're not minor because they were insignificant. They're minor because they wrote a little bit less and their place in history was, was a little bit overshadowed by people like Isaiah, by, by, by people like Ezekiel. And what you find in their content is that their messages are hard. Their messages are hard. Oftentimes these people were rejected by their families. They, they were persecuted. They were run out of town. They lived under the threat of violence and death because their message was unpopular, because their message was aggressive, because their message was intense, because their messages revealed a side of God that people didn't like to hear. Alan Hurst, this book 5Q, making a book recommendation. It's a little bit academic, but if you can get through some of the headiness of it, there's just great teaching insight in here for the five dominant spiritual gifts that are leadership gifts, apostle, and prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Listen to what he says about the prophet. Prophets know God's will. They are particularly attuned to God and his truth for today. They bring correction and challenge the dominant assumptions we inherit from culture. They insist that the community obey what God has commanded. They question the status quo without other types of leaders in place. This is important, right? Because we hold each other in check. Every spiritual gift, when you, when, especially if you, you get into Eric Reese's teaching shape, that we all hold each other in a healthy tension because if we were all left to ourselves, we would become out of balance. We'd become victims of our own strengths. The prophet, for example, become, can become belligerent. The prophet, for example, can become so frustrated with imperfection that it, it, they withdraw from the very community that God had put them in to influence because they lack patience. And sometimes they demand so much perfection they forget this idea of mercy and that God says just, you can weave a little, just stay in the lane. Prophets oftentimes become artists or poets or seers or mystics or reformers or activists. But by way of description of their personality, their ethical, theological, motivational, prefigurative, which means that they just have the sense of what's coming. And they are always, listen to this last word, you see it on the screen, contrarian. Contrarian. Because it takes someone who's contrarian to speak out against the status quo. And can I just tell you that one of the challenges that we face, I believe, in the church today 
is that when someone is operating in their prophetic voice, when someone is being contrarian, when someone is being intense, we have a tendency to say that they are operating outside of the character of Christ when more often than not, nothing could be further from the truth. They're actually demonstrating a side of the character of Christ that is unfamiliar to us. Listen to this little illustration by Bill Gothard. There's a dinner party. Someone comes out from the kitchen and they spill everything that they had in their hands. The person with the gift of prophecy would say, that's what happens when you're not careful. Because his motivation is to convict people of their sin, of what they did wrong. The person with the gift of serving might say, I'll help clean it up. Because they desire to meet a practical need. The person with the gift of teaching might say, the reason that this is me, right, which frustrates people to no end, as just as my children. The reason that tray fell is that you put too many things on one side and you needed to balance the weight more carefully because teachers want to teach. The person with the gift of exhortation would say, next time we can serve dessert with the meal, which gives a practical solution to the problem so it doesn't happen again. The person with the gift of giving would say, I'll buy new desserts for everybody here. The person with the gift of mercy would respond by hugging the hostess and saying, it's okay, don't feel bad, it could happen to anyone. Right? There's people in there, you know who they are. Let's not pick on people, but let's, Penny Jordan is one of those people. We love you, Penny. I know, because Penny just loves to love people. I tell you this, no matter what your gift is, if you're the person that spills it all, you're looking for the penny in the room. The person with the gift of leading will respond to the spilled dessert by saying, Bob, why don't you go get the towels? Mary, you grab a mop, the floor. Jane, help me fix the dessert. Leader's going to lead. Not one of these responses is wrong. Not one. Not one. They're all necessary in the body of Christ, and we must make room for one another. When we read or hear a response from someone about something that we feel is not in keeping with the character of Christ, we should be asking ourselves three questions. Closing with this. Take a picture of them. On your phone, am I expecting others to respond with my spiritual gift? Am I out of step with Jesus the lion or Jesus the lamb? Am I hiding in judgment instead of reaching out in love? I'm going to read them again. Am I expecting others to respond with my spiritual gift? Am I out of step with Jesus the lion or Jesus the lamb? Right? Am I understanding that sometimes I need to echo the roar, sometimes I need to emulate the gentleness? And am I hiding in judgment instead of reaching out in love? See, the one thing I love about this story is that everybody does something. Everybody engages the person who spilled something. I think for too many times, we take our gift and we hide it in judgment and we say under our breath what we should have done to minister to that person. It takes courage to minister in the way that God made you. But can I just tell you this? It takes even more courage to let everyone else minister in the way that God made them. We have got to stop competing with each other with our spiritual gifts. 
We are like preschool children trying to get to the front of the line. When what you need is full cheeks and a duck tail. If you don't know what that is, then come visit our preschool Monday through Friday. See those kids lined up in the hallway, man, doing everything they can to fill their cheeks with air, getting their hands, their arms are almost too short to get back there. We got to learn to make room for each other. We got to do it, people. The world on the outside is looking in at a church that can't get out of its own way. I'm just telling you right now. You can go all, to all the prayer meetings you want to. Prayer matters. You can go to all the Bible studies that, that you can handle. Because reading the Bible matters. And I can keep going on that list. I can keep going on that list. But if the church does not demonstrate in the world the character of Christ to a degree that inspires the rest of the world to ask the question, how can that, that be? And then we will not effect the change that we're believing for. It's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, you cannot light the candle and then put it under a basket. Jesus has ignited something inside of us, church, and we keep taking the humanity that we're supposed to be rescued from and weaving a basket out of it and putting it over our own light, stumbling around this world in darkness and bringing darkness to the people that we're supposed to be illuminating the way for them. Sometimes Jesus is going to roar. Sometimes Jesus knows that the only thing that a person needs to turn their life around is a menacing encounter with him. And we've got to be discerning enough to know, is Jesus asking me to be the lion or is he asking me to be the lamb? Stand with me. Father, we know that there is a well-being line that's waiting for us. The life that you've called us to live, the person that you've created us to be, the, the, the labor and the ministry that you have put in front of us. Help us to stay within the lines of mercy. Knowing that we're going to wander being patient and gracious with ourselves when we're not doing the things that we should and doing the things that we shouldn't, but let it be that we are quick to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make it right, to turn the wheel back to the center lane and get back on track. And help us to see that Jesus loves us enough to be the lion when he needs to and is wise enough to know when we need the healing touch of the lamb. Thank you for being perfect in all that you are. And may we never forget that we never will be. That we would 
put our trust in you and that we would lean on one another and we would effect the kind of change in this world that you yourself said that we were destined to bring. In Christ's holy name, in Christ's holy name, come on and everybody said together, amen.